Welcome to the October 21 edition of Practical Neurology's uh, Editor's Podcast. So I'm Phil Smith. I'm joined by my co-editor, Garrett Fuller. And we're going to highlight a few of the very best papers in this 100-page issue. And it's fair to say, Garrett, I think we were spoiled for choice to find an editor's choice this time, but we eventually settled on autoimmune encephalitis, clinical spectrum and management. And this is from Sarosh Irani and team in Oxford. And uh, Garrett, you've been particularly enjoying this paper, I think. Yes, thank you, Phil. This is a very timely paper. We get quite a lot of submissions of case reports of different types of autoimmune encephalitis. And clearly that reflects the interest of neurologists and the realisation of this whole new field of uh, really quite complicated neurological conditions that provide such a challenge in terms of diagnosis and management. And I think that's one of the things that prompts people to share their uh, clinical experience and their case reports. Um, it prompted us to try and get a, an appropriate review. And I think um, Sarosh Irani and his team uh, with Christopher Yoi and uh, Sophie Binks have done an absolutely magnificent job here. It's worthwhile reflecting that it, you know, 20 years ago, we didn't have this condition. And there's been this really dramatic, almost paradigm shift, to use uh, Thomas Kuhn's phrase, that describes a real change in thinking. Because we used to think encephalitis was just a viral illness and, and that was it. But now it seems that autoimmune conditions actually are perhaps the most common form of encephalitis. And indeed, a lot of the patients who've had infective encephalitis can develop autoimmune encephalitis too. And what Sarosh has done uh, is to take us through a very pragmatic and very practical approach to the whole phenomenon. So he, he starts off by talking about the, the ways in which they present, the things they have in common, the things that are different, um, and, and lots of very useful and insightful observations. So, for example, when the patients present with a psychiatric disturbance, um, patients, for example, with the commonest form, NMDA encephalitis, have a transdiagnostic presentation of uh, their psychiatric phenomena. So they have a psychosis, a behavioural disturbance, agitation, not a single modality of psychiatric, which is very helpful in distinguishing it from other psychotic illnesses. He goes on and talks about you know, other factors, the, the, the very characteristic seizures that they can sometimes have, and um, really quite a whole range of odd movement disorders that occur at the beginning. And all of this leads you to really quite a range of uh, different antibody associations. And he gives more details of, uh, in fact, 11 uh, diagnostic groups. And really the, the drive of all of that is that there's a very high chance that you can make a fairly good clinical diagnosis and clinical anticipation of which antibody is likely to be the cause of the problem. And as a result, you're able to then start aggressive treatment with immunotherapy early. And that it, there seems to be little doubt, I mean, it's a new field, the trial data is limited, but there seems little doubt that prompt early aggressive treatment seems to be the effective way of trying to help these patients who are often extraordinarily unwell and yet you can transform them quite quickly. Um, he obviously takes you through what we know about the treatments and the limitations of the treatments and provides a very pragmatic advice about not just how to start it, but also what to do in the longer term, which is often something which is very challenging in uh, patients with these relatively newer diseases. So I think this is a beautiful paper that I think people will find incredibly helpful in framing their thinking and guiding what to do. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you and I have lived through the era where this, as you say, didn't exist. And uh, 
it's like one of those threshold concepts where once you're through the back, you know, once you're through the uh, understanding, then you can't really go back to thinking what it was like before you knew and understood it. And I think it's a bit like uh, the irregular heartbeat causing the majority of stroke. I mean, who who would have thought that back in the 1930s, 40s, before Miller Fisher uh, sorted it all out for us? And uh, or that peptic ulcer is caused by an, a bacterium and needs to be treated with antibiotics. That that is a, that was a new thing at the time. But now you just can't go back to thinking of it any other way. So yeah, I, I, this paper I, I do like. Uh, I like table one. It's a joy to to look at. Really, uh, list of each antibody and the likely phenotype. And most of it isn't so clear cut. But uh, the, the fascia, brachial, dystonic seizures seem to be the, the most, and NMDA and cephalitis, of course. But a long list of these. Uh, antibodies and uh, there's a figure giving the list against their frequency and uh, naturally as a neurologist we're drawn to the bottom the least frequent and uh, uh, looking at uh, uh, IGLO N5 giving a PSP syndrome that that sort of thing is of great interest but uh, no I think that um, I, I was also reminded of the book that we reviewed uh, Susanna Callahan's uh, Brain on Fire and she was one of the first people to develop NMDA encephalitis uh, and get it recognised and diagnosed and uh, described her experience of that in uh, a, a book in 2009. So only really very, very recent. So yeah, I, I think that this is a, a paper that is definitely going to help uh, clinicians and it's clearly something that will need regular updates as new antibodies come along to uh, explain more and more of the spectrum of this condition. But I, I think he also very helpfully encourages us to use focused diagnostic testing. Um, so rather than learning a longer list of antibodies that you use in various circumstances, to actually try and use it in a, and actually choose which antibodies to test as a result of the clinical phenotype, because obviously false positives and so on can be very distractive and disruptive in terms of managing the patient. So I think um, very sensible, clinically grounded, really useful. Great, okay. Well, the next paper then um, we're going to talk about is trigeminal neuralgia, and this is from uh, Manjit Mathuru's uh, group in Queen Square in London. And this is a very clinical paper again. It's a, it's a condition, of course, that is common. Every neurologist will have seen a lot of this. And he takes a clinical standpoint and notes the importance of uh, the detailed uh, clinical history, etc. But I have to say, despite the advances in imaging and molecular biology and uh, understanding of genetics and everything, the first line preventative treatment for trigeminal neuralgia is, spoiler alert, carbamazepine. After 50 years, uh, you know, this still is the number one treatment, carbamazepine and oxcarbazepine. And there's a, there's a few other things that have been tried as well, but uh, this has stood the test of time. Um, maybe because it's perhaps... Uh, a form of a sodium channelopathy relating to the the origin of the of the fifth nerve anyway the the clinical features the things that we knew about of course the uh, laterality and site of the pain is mainly maxillary occasionally mandibular rarely ophthalmic the uh, the frequency and duration of attacks the, the fact that there are triggers and the trigger often is the lightest wisp 
rather than necessarily something really heavy and noxious or or burning or whatever. And um, there's the refractory period as well, which can be for seconds or minutes that you get no response to these further stimulations. Um, and the distinction of trigeminal neuralgia from the various short uh, neuralgia form headaches, Suna and Sunt, which presumably are part of the same spectrum, but because they involve the ophthalmic division, there is much more in the way of uh, lacrimation, conjunctival injection, rhinorrhea, etc. Uh, they are slightly less often triggered and don't seem to have the refractory period. So there are differences as well. But the main difference in practice is that the treatment for sunct and sooner is lamotrigine. So uh, first line, but uh, you're going to try the other things as well. Clinical signs, very few, sometimes mild hypoesthesia. And sometimes you see the patient actually doing the uh, wincing with the pain, the so-called tick dollareur. So an MRI is essential because we need to know if there is an underlying vessel, superior cerebellar artery, pressing on the, on the fifth nerve. But the treatment, well, there's a list of treatments in the various trials. Um, besides carbamazepine, oxcarbazepine, you can try lamotrigine, gabapentin, pregabalin, uh, surprisingly, baclofen, even more surprisingly, botulinum toxin, perhaps. And uh, surgery where they're treatment resistant or, or, or where there is clearly a vessel on, on imaging. And uh, the least invasive is stereotactic radiosurgery. But, uh, and the more ablative ones have the risk, as always, after a, a time of anesthesia dolorosa. So it's... Um, you know, it's a very helpful paper, I think. It sets out by an expert, by a team of experts, largely what a lot of what we already knew, but it sort of reinforces that helpfully, I think. And, and it gives us all reassurance that we're on the right track when we see it set out in this way by a team at the cutting edge of management of this condition. I, I mean, I thought it was a nice paper. And I think one thing I was slightly surprised by uh, was the relative... Uh, numbers involved in studies of drugs versus surgeries. I mean, normally we're rather dismissive of surgical attempts to try and quantify outcomes. But actually, if you look at the numbers of patients involved in the drug trials, some of them are only 12. I mean, you know, you're looking at changing therapies on the basis of tiny sample size uh, as compared to the thousands in the surgical series. Um, it does mean that you do feel that there's perhaps an opportunity for something like the SANAD trial, a large empirical treatment, to try and work out which of these different agents is best. Uh, carbamazepine maybe is best, perhaps we've stumbled on the best treatment first, but it seems plausible that maybe different strategies might work better and perhaps uh, something on a larger scale for what's actually quite a rare disease may be quite helpful. The next one then is uh, progressive supranuclear palsy, diagnosis and management. And this is from James Rowe uh, in Cambridge and colleagues. And so, uh, Garrett, you're, you're going to have a chat about this. So, again, this is a lovely clinically-led paper. This, this has been written very much with the clinician in mind. And indeed, sometimes the tone as you're reading it, you feel it's being directed and spoken to you rather than reading it as a third person. Um, it's always rem remarkable that it took till the 1960s that this very characteristic condition was identified and distinguished from Parkinson's and the other conditions uh, that we link it with. Um, and indeed, 
James Rowe's team make the very clear point and take you through the reasons it looks completely different from Parkinson's. And whilst the diagnosis can be challenging, and I think they highlight the fact that it takes three years from symptom onset to getting a diagnosis, and really an appreciation that we probably need to do better than that. It has very characteristic features that if you're aware of them and look for them, you should be able to make a diagnosis sooner. Now, you could argue, what's the great point of that? And I think they address that uh, directly by uh, highlighting the, the need for symptomatic and treatment and management of the patient. But they also highlight the fact that there are some studies attempting to, to produce disease modification. And clearly the cohort of patients with an earlier diagnosis is inevitably going to have more opportunity to respond to those kind of treatments um, if and when they become available. So I think it's a really nice discussion of a condition which is actually becoming slightly more complicated. I mean, the core Richardson syndrome, the PSP that we're all familiar with, is the commonest form, but they do identify the fact that sometimes they, patients can present with a speech disturbance so that it can look more like a primary progressive aphasia at the beginning, and then they develop the supranuclear palsy. Sometimes they can have more CBD-type uh, phenomena. There's a, a phenotype where people get freezing of gait, and having seen patients with this, it's extremely difficult to know quite what to do, but it's very helpful if you can actually provide a framework for those patients in uh, terms of advising what's going to happen in the future. So I think a very nice practical paper with lots of sensible advice, which I think our colleagues will find very useful. Yeah, certainly uh, very practical, very focused and uh, surprisingly upbeat, actually, because I, I suppose a lot of people think of PSP as being an untreatable condition and uh, worry what they can say to the patient when they come back for a review appointment. And uh, mostly uh, it's about supporting the carers and uh, listening and so forth. But actually, James identifies all sorts of things that we can do and uh, he has a great line says it's easy to bamboozle someone with PSP but you can be their champion you can be the one that that stands up for them and uh, identifies all the little things uh, the the symptom relief in various ways that can really help them and and actually just by making the diagnosis and coming to a definite conclusion is really helpful for people who have been uh, having a mystery illness up to then in which they've been uh, falling and uh, generally deteriorating and it's not been really clear what, what is happening. So making that diagnosis is important, but uh, reading this paper and understanding all of the various things that can be done. And this, again, uh, hearing the expert view is so helpful, uh, the voice of experience. Um, you know, little things that he says, for example, when you're testing for preserved pursuit of the eyes, um, you, you should sort of put that, wiggle the head from side to side first because they've got axial rigidity and therefore uh, you won't necessarily easily be able to do the, the vertical movements passively. And thinking about the bone health, but remembering that because they've got dysphagia as well, that oral bisphosphonates might give them uh, uh, a problem with their esophagus. So I do like this, uh, this paper. I, I'm not seeing a lot of PSP, but uh, uh, I will certainly be turning to this paper when I do. I did ask James, actually, why 
they honed in on Richardson as being the name of the eponym uh, they chose, rather than Steel Richardson. I, I thought it might have been a bit like uh, Eaton Lambert being switched around because Lambert made all of the subsequent uh, work on, on this condition, and so it was switched around. But no, he says that John Steele's still alive and working. He's writing a paper with James Rowe soon. Uh, he's just a very modest man, apparently, and uh, uh, he's very generous with John Richardson's uh, contribution. Uh, his insights and so forth. So I think it was just generosity, really, that they they thought they'd highlight uh, John Richardson on this. So the next paper we're going to talk about is uh, Syringomyelia. This is by Graham Flint from Birmingham. He's the sort of undisputed national, probably international expert on Syringomyelia. I felt we were really lucky to get him to, to do this. And he's, besides being a very, very experienced surgeon. And besides having learned all of the lessons that the best surgeons do uh, do less surgery, probably. I mean, uh, you know, it's when not to do the operation that is so important. He's also got a real grasp of what practical neurology is about. And he's been kind enough to referee a couple of papers and help the authors to shape their papers uh, properly. So, um, and syringomyelia has changed over the time of his career. Uh, I mean, we used to think of it. I mean, in, in a way, syringomalia, I think, has a slightly bad reputation as being like the the typical classical bowtie neurology where a man, and usually was a man then, man with a red pin maps out the cape and balaclava of the suspended and dissociated sensory loss. And it's sort of a classical neuroanatomical condition uh, that medical students would learn their anatomy by. And they, they sort of arrive at clinic, do medical students, expecting the clinic is full of syringomyelia and full of hemisection and this sort of thing. And it turns out to be that it's all about the history. Uh, but the thing that's changed with syringomyelia is that MRI has meant that we no longer have the terrible, disabling syringomyelia condition developing late the problem is much more now that we have lots of people with a small syrinx or even a big syrinx, it doesn't seem to correlate that well clinically, the size of it, um, whose symptoms may or may not be all due to the syrinx. And the surgeon has to decide and work with them to decide if uh, an operation is the best thing for them. And um, I like the way that uh, Graham finishes his article with saying that our duty as, as doctors is to listen to and believe our patients. We must take the time to explain matters, apologising for our own deficiencies in understanding these enigmatic disorders and aim to do no harm, but also avoid leaving our patients feeling not believed and dismissed. Because though it, it often people have a lot of symptoms and yet they know they've got a fluid-filled cyst within their spinal cord and inevitably that they are led to believe that an operation would be the right thing and and uh, that's the big challenge for neurosurgeons now. I mean I think the other issue obviously is that the syrinx is inevitably bound up with the Chiari malformation and Clearly, quite a large part of his discussion is what to do with a Chiari malformation or patients who have Chiari, which is a very frequent incidental finding. Sometimes it's plausibly symptomatic, but the issues then are what to do about it because none of the interventions are without their risks. And whilst 
Clearly, I think he says again, you can make a dramatic life-changing uh, in, intervention by doing an operation, but you can also make a dramatic life-worsening uh, intervention by doing an operation. So clearly, I think he needs to be very careful. And, and I think he very carefully provides the background to managing what's obviously quite a common and quite difficult issue. I was also struck by the, the, the great charm with which he's written it. it. For the most part, we tend to avoid footnotes, but um, his footnotes were sufficiently entertaining and insightful that we left them in. And, and one of my favourites was when he was discussing what the plural of a syrinx is, because there's some dispute as to whether it's a syringe. And his, to address this, he wrote, to aspirate CSF, the author uses a syringe taken out of a box of syringes, not a syrinx taken out of a box of syrinxes. The attached fine needle then enters a syrinx, not a syringe. Perfect. And there's another lovely one about the uh, Cavalier King Charles Spaniels, of which uh, 100% have a Chiari and uh, 70% have a syrinx. And um, it got me wondering, actually, whether they're called Cavalier King Charles Spaniel because they've got a cape and balaclava. But uh, I couldn't actually find this anywhere on the internet. I'm, I'm afraid it was because it was Prince... It was King Charles II. <laughs> it was Prince Charles. Well, what a shame. Or rather, sorry, King Charles I. <laughs> um, apparently, they all... They nearly all have mitral valve disease as well, and apparently it's very rare for a ten-year-old King Charles Spaniel not to have a murmur. So, I've, I've learned a lot about uh, a lot of things from from this really great paper from uh, a, a true expert, and uh, you know he's one on, on his own in in this field. So, uh, please read. And, and and I again, I don't see a lot of syringomyelia, thankfully. But when I do, and when other people ask me about it, this is the paper that will stand the test of time. I think to to help them. Yeah. And, and I think we do see a lot of uh, Chiari, and I think this is a helpful resource. And obviously, it's um, it's available on the internet so that uh, people will be able to see it and actually refer their patients to it, because I think uh, the people will find that helpful to, to read that they're not alone. And the next paper is uh, on iatrogenic cerebral radiation, which actually comes from Denmark, from the uh, Riggs Hospitalat, Copenhagen. Now... This is a very unusual paper and, and, broadly speaking, describes a sequence of events which clearly were very difficult. So you had a patient with an AVM who had extended and really very extensive uh, surgery and or, um, endovascular treatment, and as a result had a very substantial dose of radiation and sadly went on to develop radionecrosis within the area of radiation, including some damage to the scalp. And broadly, they talk about their attempts to try and help this patient in what's a very difficult sequence of events. And I think it throws up quite a number of different and difficult problems related to radionecrosis. So uh, they started initially with steroids treatment, which seemed to make some difference. Uh, they tried a VEGF uh, autoantibody, which is referred to as bevacizumab, which aim to try and prevent the proliferation that you get in the vasculature associated with the VEGF stimulation. That was then complicated by a scalp wound and the loss of scalp, which they had to treat with uh, um, hyperbaric oxygen, with, with all the complications that that was associated. So ultimately, the patient seems to have done pretty well on the back of really quite difficult radionecrosis. But it was quite an interesting discussion of the approach to a very difficult situation and indeed some of the uncertainties with the interventions that they had. Yeah, and we're obviously very keen to publish uh, 
not not so much mistakes, but uh, you know, preventable problems where people have looked into this uh, in enough detail to advise people to avoid this sort of situation again. And that's certainly in their setting that this patient has clearly led to a change in practice about the uh, length of exposure to the radiation during the uh, imaging procedure. But particularly, we're, we're keen to uh, publish errors if they lead to some definitive new treatment as well, but not too novel. But this is clearly something where there is an opportunity to uh, see some improvement in an area where, where one wouldn't normally expect there to be uh, a treatable uh, area. So I, th- I think that to learn about this new monoclonal is going to be ha- helpful. So certainly, the, the next case report that... It is one that we do need to know a lot about, I think. And this is a new condition. Uh, this is uh, CAPS, or cryopyrin-associated periodic syndrome. And this is from um, Marja Christiansen and colleagues in Australia. They're, they're in uh, Hobart and Tasmania. And uh, this is a genetic condition, autosomal dominant condition, where there is uh, auto-inflammation and uh, it can present, for example, with uh, deafness and uh, then neurologically people can have papilledema and uh, pachymeningitis, etc., which uh, is a problem, but also more systemic illnesses as well relating to granulomatous vasculitis. What we're going to learn from this paper though is that we need to be aware that uh, someone with deafness and uh, new neurological problems uh, particularly if there's a family history of deafness may have this condition which is uh, not only identifiable by a genetic marker the NLRP3 gene but is treatable it is treatable with um, uh, interleukin antagonists such as uh, Anakinra. So we've probably seen cases of like this and not recognised them up to now, but this is a this is a new condition and we are going to probably see many more uh, genetic conditions l- like this which uh, are going to be appropriately diagnosable and, and treatable. So, yes, so Phil, I mean, I think first of all we should just make absolutely clear it's a new condition but not described for the first time in practical neurology. Thank you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> because that would never do. We, 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 we don't have anything that is brand new in, your, in practical neurology However, on purpose. That, hopefully it does, it does mean that people will be aware of these new uh, types of diseases. And I think this is, I mean, we talked about the paradigm shifts uh, at the top of the show, as it were. The idea that uh, actually you think about things differently. And I think historically, if you think about the surgical sieve, things being inflammatory, infective, genetic, all these things... We tend to see the time course of genetic disease as being something that is typically progressive. And in this situation, we have a really quite variable and episodic disorder, which is the result of a genetic disorder. And I think that's really quite a big change in thinking about the nature of the condition. And whilst this is a specific example with a therapeutic opportunity, there are almost certainly going to be many others where if we know a little bit more about it, we might be able to think about things quite differently. Yeah, okay. And um, 
We're just going to finish off by just mentioning the book club report as well this month, which is one of the best neurological books I've read, actually. So I'd, li- I'd like to uh, a shout out for it. It's The Last Act of Love by Kathy Rensenbrink. And it is about her brother, who was a sort of golden child, age 17, athletic, tall, brilliant exam results, and he suffered a devastating head injury and was vegetative. And the last act of love was that eventually, after seven years, the family decided that the best thing they could do for him would be to uh, withdraw nutrition and uh, hydration with appropriate sedation. And they had to, in order to do that, they had to go to court at that time. This is no longer necessary, but uh, it it is the the second half of the book, having done this uh, act of love with their brother, the second half of the book is about how the sister, that's the author, comes to terms with what has happened and never really comes to terms with it. It was such a tragic loss for them. But but, but it's written in a, uh, a positive way and there's a lot of learning in it about just how serious a head injury can be, for one thing, but also how a, f- a whole family, how a whole community can be so disrupted by by a single event that just happens in a moment and yet it changes so many people's lives utterly uh, thereafter. I really think it is a book that all neurologists should read and uh, I, I commend it to you. Thank you, Phil. I mean, uh, just on the, the idea of book clubs, I mean, the whole point of them is to try and bring books with some sort of neurological dimension uh, albeit often very tangential to people's attention and to give people some sort of background as to why a, a group of people found something interesting. We were, we were quite hopeful that lots of places might consider uh, having neurology book clubs. We've obviously got quite a number of centres that do it and we're very happy to consider submissions from them. And I think aside from encouraging people to read these books and giving people a forum to discuss it, it's often very helpful in um engaging people within the department, improving the social aspects of work, which obviously uh, is a a very helpful thing to do. And uh, oftentimes uh, means you get to meet your colleagues in a setting which you wouldn't otherwise, which is is all to the good. Now, we would just like to trail the fact that we're going to have a Christmas edition, which is going to include quite a list of the range of the favourite books from the various book clubs to try and give people a starter Uh, as to which books to choose from. And hopefully that's going to encourage more places to launch their own book clubs. So a bit of a trailer there and something to look forward to for Christmas. Also, some ideas for Christmas presents if you really, really are uh, having trouble just then. Great. Okay, thank you. And uh, so with that and with the thought of Christmas in our our mind, we're uh, going to wish you well and uh, see you next time. So uh, goodbye and thank you for listening. Goodbye. Cheerio.